there is not a single face of long COVID. Long COVID can be people in their prime, you know, at working age, it can be people a little bit older, it can be people who had no, you know, pre-existing health conditions. Um, it, it doesn't discriminate um, in terms of who it strikes. And I think Congress needs to know that. It's not the sick and the weak. It's not, you know, it's not middle-aged women only, it's, it's everybody. And until they pay attention to that, they will not be able to get a handle on the problem. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. I'm your host, Patrick Farnsworth. In this episode, I speak with Long COVID Action Project activists, Stephanie and Linda, along with journalist and LCAP founder, Joshua Perbanic. They joined me in this impromptu interview to discuss the recent direct action Linda and Stephanie participated in at the Senate Help Committee hearing on January 18th, ostensibly held to address the ongoing and growing long COVID crisis in the United States. And this is the first to be released in an ongoing series of interviews done in collaboration with Joshua Perbanic to address the realities of what long COVID is and the action needed to address this issue comprehensively. I thank you for being here. I thank the committee for examining it. And uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, Senator Cassidy. Um, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Um. So we are now over four years into this COVID-19 pandemic, and an estimated 23 plus million people in the United States are suffering from post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, which is a broad array of dozens of different symptoms, commonly called long COVID. Similar to HIV-AIDS in its ability to damage the immune systems of those it infects, the largely unmitigated spread of SARS-CoV-2 is producing a health crisis of massive proportions and unprecedented scale, both nationally and globally. And so on January 18th, there was this Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions ostensibly held to address this crisis. But as Linda and Stephanie, two activists from this grassroots organization, Long COVID Action Project, and by its founder, Joshua Probanik, articulate in this interview, that not only did the aims of this hearing fall insultingly short of addressing the true severity of this issue, it obscures key aspects of this crisis. This is in great part why Stephanie and Linda felt compelled to disrupt this hearing and to state LCAP's demands before being swiftly removed by security. So finally, before we jump into this interview, I do want to actually read these 11 demands that were made by LCAP. So the first in these demands is to declare long COVID a national emergency. Long COVID is a national security threat. Number two is to establish at least $28 billion in funding for long COVID programs and research to find a cure. And this number, $28 billion, is in reference to what David Cutler, a health economist and professor of economics at Harvard University, verified to Joshua Probanik that this is an annual ask that is equal to HIV funding and is not excessive. 
and that the benefits would be enormous if that were to occur. Number three is to mandate nationwide tracking of SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. Number four is to announce a clean air law to prevent the forward transmission of this virus. Number five is to mandate respirator protection in healthcare facilities. Number six is to demand regular White House press communication updates. Seven is to establish a permanent entity to expand and accelerate access to prevention, research, and treatment of long COVID. Number eight is ensure sufficient social support by the following. Nine is urgent, sufficient, and sustained progress towards ending the long COVID crisis. Ten is begin immediate assistance to children with long COVID by passing new SARS-CoV-2 specific legislation, i.e. for a new and novel virus tied to long COVID, that meets the minimum annual funding of the $28 billion referenced in this letter by the Harvard Health economist David Cutler. And the 11th demand is to ensure racial and gender health equity in research, access to clinical trials, preventative measures, educational campaigns, and social services. Finally, before we get into this, I just want to say all the resources that are mentioned in this interview and mentioned in this introduction will be in the description of this episode. I'll be putting on my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. And if you really want to learn about the demands of the Long COVID Action Project, what it is, how they're organized, what it's all about, go to longcovidactionproject.com. So this is a bit of an impromptu uh, interview, but uh, Josh, thank you for setting this up. Um, And we have, I believe it's Stephanie and Linda is the names that we're going by. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and you're both here. So I just really thank you for the time. And um, yeah, I think we'll just jump right into this, which is really just a a question to really get at the heart of this, which is just yesterday, the uh, there was a Senate committee on health, education, labor and pensions, and they heard from folks discussing long COVID as a national issue. Um, And as Josh framed it prior to the beginning of this recording, uh, there was some direct action involved by long COVID activists. Um, now, I'll just say to you too, uh, this is a historic event. I mean, the first time that we've really seen such, I mean, such a full display of, of direct action regarding this really massive issue. Um, so if, I don't know who to direct this towards first, whoever wants to go in first, but really speak to like, the fact is that finally, it seems that we have this sort of Senate committee, there's a federal government's really kind of beginning very slowly, but beginning to really address this issue on some level. What is lacking? Why is it necessary to do this sort of direct action? Um, There are a number of reasons. I mean, the hearing for one, the format of the hearing, the timing of the hearing, um, it was given with one, one week's notice. Mm. Um, over a holiday weekend to a community that is largely disabled and devoid of resources, you know, financial resources, um, and for whom travel is very difficult and very risky. Um, we risk reinfection with exposure, even if we try to take, you know, precautions um, with masking and things like that. And many of us are immunocompromised. So having a hearing with so little chance to actually have representation is a big problem. It, it really favors the people. It, it biases the representation at the hearing to those who are the most healthy, the most well-off. And it skews the picture of what long COVID is 
for the Senate, um, in senators holding the hearing and for the American public. And that is a huge problem. And that is a problem that has been pervasive from the beginning with long COVID is the most severe patients are not being represented at all. I see. And the other thing with the hearing is um, for anyone to request accommodation of any kind of disability, it has to be done three days um, in advance, three business days in advance. So the hearing was announced on Thursday. Um, You know, people had Friday, if they heard about it right away, Friday, um, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then the hearing was Thursday to get any accommodation. There's there's no time for that. So I, I really feel like, it is on the surface, it looked like a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow, they're finally, you know, wanting to listen to long COVID patients. But it had the appearance without the substance behind it of allowing full representation. And, and that's part of the reason that we were there. Okay. Um, and then I guess other things, if I can go into them, um, is, is that, that um, you know, so representation is, is one of them. And, and I will say we have patients in our community who are suffering from very severe um, conditions now. We have people who are developing AIDS like immunodeficiency. Um, We have people, and they are succumbing to um, secondary um, opportunistic infections. Um, We have people who are getting strokes. We have people who are developing cancers. We have people who um, are developing, um, you know, strange metabolic disorders and immune, um, autoimmune diseases. Um, We have a lot of severity that's not represented there. Generally, when long COVID is being represented in hearings like this or um, in the public, they're focusing on fatigue. And yes, fatigue is a bad symptom to have, but it's not nearly as um, life-threatening as some of the other symptoms that people are developing. And these conditions just aren't seeing the light of day. And LCAP had requested to be able to... um, participate in the hearing to have uh, witnesses testify. There was a letter campaign, which I think is the largest um, long COVID letter campaign that resulted in over 400,000 letters being sent um, to public officials requesting um, representation. Well, some of them later requested representation at the hearing once we found out about that. But before that, um, LCAP has 11 demands to stop long COVID um, to address the pandemic um, to address the pandemic itself and to address the phenomenon of long COVID. Um, the two need to be addressed together. And um, we have not been receiving any traction on that. So the letter campaign was to um, really publicize that. And then um, we had a following campaign when we heard about the hearing to get representation at the hearing itself so we could present LCAP's demands and the position of LCAP and have a seat at the table. Mm. And that, that did not occur, is that it correct? did not occur. And LCAP has been trying for a long time to get a seat at the table, and that has not happened. And this felt like a last-ditch effort. We had hope up until the end that we might be given a chance to testify. That didn't happen, and so we resorted to the direct action. Mm-hmm. To start sure. drawing attention to things that, that um, Congress does not seem to be willing to look at. I have to say, like I think from the distance that I have to the situation, I could see on social media a combination of reactions. One was just this, almost a, a sigh of relief from some folks, which is like, finally you have them saying something. It's being acknowledged, it's being said. Some of the people being uh, that were testifying in this were saying some very important things. Do you feel that, like maybe I'll ask, was there anything from this um, Senate committee that, that rang true or that, that like, you know, moved this 
forward in any way or do you feel like it fully fell short? Well, I have to be honest here is that um, we listened to the first um, to like to um, Senator Sanders open the hearing and then we listened to Senator uh, Cassidy um, and then we were we performed our direct action and then we're, we were ejected from the building. So we didn't mm. we were not able to listen to the full hearing. I heard snippets right. later, but I, I don't think I can offer a full opinion on the hearing itself, um, except that I do not think that the speakers well represented the full range of conditions, again, that the long COVID community um, suffers from. And I also feel like there is an absence of the men um, representing this disease. There are many men who suffer from this disease, and um, they were not um, represented there. Why is that the case? I, I, I do not know. Um, mm. you, know you know, there are there's an impression that this is a, a, more of a woman's disease. And I think the data might bear that out. I don't know how good the statistics are, but it's only slightly more than half of long COVID sufferers are, um, you know, women, according to the studies I've read. And again, I don't know how, how good those data are, but that still leaves men at a very high percentage that, that get this. And, and I think that it's important for Congress to see that this is a disease that affects everybody. There is not a single face of long COVID. Long COVID can be people in their prime, you know, at working age. It can be people a little bit older. It can be people who had no, you know, pre-existing health conditions. Um, it, it doesn't discriminate um, in terms of who it strikes. And I think Congress needs to know that. It's not the sick and the weak. It's not, you know, it's not middle-aged women only. It's it's everybody. And until they pay attention to that, they will not be able to get a handle on the problem. Mm. Yeah, I'd also just like to speak to um, about your comment about it being a sigh of relief for some people. Um, and the reality is, is that we're four years into this um, and it's far too late for it to be. I mean, it should have happened a long time ago. There's people who have been sick with long COVID for four years. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just kind of a reminder that they're not taking it seriously. And they, we don't have the time to wait for someone to take action, I guess, is kind of how I feel. For sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like looking at this, it's been going on for now over four years. So the fact that it's taken this long, um, you know, uh, again, something that Josh and I have talked about in previous interviews that have yet to be released is really kind of comparing it to the HIV, HIV crisis, HIV epidemic, um, and ACT UP, which is just a and it was an incredible um, activist group that really pushed forward a lot of our understandings of, of what HIV was and, and also uh, forcing the federal government to really move its hand and to actually, on some level, address it in some kind of comprehensive way. Um, people have made comparisons to the HIV epidemic and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic um, what parallels do you both see there? I think people need to kind of understand on some level the parallels. I, I, I find that there are pretty obvious comparisons, but I'd be curious if you both had some insights into that. Um, yeah, I can start in, uh, on this. Um, so I would like to give some context here. This is very personal to me. Um, I had a family member who passed away from AIDS in 1990. And if he had lived a little bit longer, he would still be alive today. 
Um, and um, he was in, exposed and it took about seven years before he developed symptoms and was tested and he passed away about a year and a half later. So I'm starting to see the same types of diagnoses in my cohort from the first wave and long COVID. It is very scary. Um, I'm seeing people develop the, um, uh, the immunodeficiency, their lymphocyte um, panels are coming out as actually qualifying in the range of AIDS. If they did not, ha if they had HIV, it would be, they would be diagnosed as having AIDS. Um, their um, disease is, is from long COVID though. They, they're HIV negative. So I know what happened in that community. I saw it. I felt it. I lost somebody dear to my family. Um, it, I do not want to see that in, in this community. I do not want to see that in my friends. I do see people now uh, progressing along that, starting to develop um, opportunistic infections. Um, some people starting to get cancer diagnoses. We, we have an urgency here that the government is not recognizing, is not responding to, and we will end up in the same place, I fear, if we do not treat long COVID as the national emergency that it is. Again, these comparisons can be stretched too far, too thin, but I just think that um, the ways in which the HIV epidemic, the AIDS crisis was compartmentalized in the minds of many people as being like, well, this is what gay people or gay men are experiencing. Obviously, it that's not how that particular disease works. That doesn't make any actual sense, but we understand that that was the first you know community in the United States that was detrimentally affected by this this virus. But you know, yeah, SARS-CoV-2, the virus is not sexually transmitted. It is a airborne virus. It pervades every public space in the world, basically, right now. Um, and right now, as we speak, I mean, we're in, what, January 19th of 2024. We're in this what's considered the second largest wave of COVID infections since the Omicron wave. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's like, this has not become endemic. This is not something that is, de we've developed any sort of immunity towards on, on a kind of collective level. So, yeah, I mean, just speaking to this massive crisis of the amount of people that are becoming infected and reinfected over and over and over again, it's just, it's just the mind reels at the implications of this as we move forward the amount of people that are suffering right now, and then the amount of people that will begin, as we speak, uh, you know, starting to develop more and more health issues, complications, and disabilities. It's it's like, um, you know, and Josh has framed it this way, and, and I'm curious how you feel about this particular way of framing it, which is that this is a national security issue. Um, I, I'm curious what either of you think of it in that framing as far as the health and welfare of U.S. Americans and people around the world as well. So, yeah, I definitely think it is a national security issue. And with the infection rates, so currently the infection rates of, um, you know, COVID, um, it's 1.2 to 1.5 million new infections a day in the U.S. That is astronomical. This is the second largest wave um, ever. And we cannot continue to infect that many people and have the 10% of infections leading to long COVID where we're infecting people again and again and again and expect to have a robust economy um, or you know, a robust military. Um, 
especially with, you know, a disease that is creating these kinds of symptoms as well as cognitive impairment. And there are many ways in which um, COVID is creating, you know, cognitive dysfunction. Um, and we can't, we just can't as a nation afford to go down that path. And, you know, the other thing with um, long COVID is we're finding more and more evidence of viral persistence. And that's, again, back to your you know, comment about HIV, you know, AIDS, is we're finding viral persistence in, in the same locations. We're finding it in the, in the brain. We're finding it in the gut. We're finding it in the bone marrow. We're finding it in, in organs throughout the body. Um, so you're thinking about that from a public health perspective. You know, it's, it's frightening to think that even in people who aren't displaying um, symptoms of long COVID, they're still finding some of these viral reservoirs. So what's gonna happen down the line? And that is a huge issue for our economy and for our national security. Uh, Josh, do you wanna do you wanna jump in at any point? I don't know if you had any questions or any comments to make in regards to any of these these questions that I brought up. Well, I think it's 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 probably gonna be unclear for some people um, what was said and, and what that means. So I think it would just be helpful to hear from both of the activists, uh, what it, what it is, what is it that you said and why did, why did you say those things? So the first thing we said is LCAP fights back. And that is in my mind, and I think it could mean different things to different people, but for me, it meant that we're not going to sit down and keep taking this anymore. We are going to fight back. And for me, that means, you know, fighting back for myself, but fighting back for the people who can't be there and fighting for urgency um, on this. I don't know if you wanted to add to that. No, I think Okay. And, and then um, the second line of our chant was declare long COVID a national emergency. Uh, I think that kind of, we have spoken about so many you know, reasons for that here. I think you have enough information on that, that this is not something we can afford you know, to wait on. And as Stephanie mentioned you know, earlier, the government has sat around for four years and we still have no treatments. We still have no treatments for long COVID. Um, and, and we cannot afford to continue down that path. We need to treat it as the national emergency it is. So that was our, you know, our, our battle cry was LCAP fights back. But the, the first line was declare long COVID a national emergency and everything else falls under that. So I would say those two were the most important lines of our, um, of our chant. And um, after that, um, we said antivirals now. Um, and um, because, again, of the viral persistence um, and all of the evidence about that um, and the fact that it's not just viral debris. Some, some of the you know, folks talking about viral persistence are saying, oh, it's just you know, sort of straight mm. you know, spike protein or, or viral particles or things like that. That is true for, for some of the studies, but um, they are also finding actual replication competent virus in some of these reservoirs. Mm. So um, it does appear that antivirals are what we're going to need to control the replicating virus. I would, last was tested with spike protein uh, for spike protein um, two and a half years into my long COVID. Um, and I had spike protein in my blood two and a half years in. I haven't been able to afford another test, but the spike protein is being produced somewhere. So anyway, so antivirals now. Um, and then after that, it was 28 billion now. And that's based on an economic analysis of what long COVID should get um, to mm. tackle this problem. And um, it tears with the 11 demands as well. So to meet the 11 demands, the budget of 28 
28 billion, and that's 28 billion a year, um, would be needed to get this pandemic under control. If we do not do that, we have a huge hit on our economy. The cost of, of, of doing nothing about long COVID is far higher than the $28 billion a year cost of doing something. Um, so, and then we had um, one more line in that. Well, we had a few more. The, the other one was moonshot kills. And I know this was controversial um, because many of the people at the hearing were supporting the moonshot. The moonshot is a $1 billion a year ask, and it's tied to legislation um, that does not meet the 11 demands and, in fact, leaves out some of the most important elements of the 11 demands, and that is the real emphasis on developing treatments, effective treatments. That should be a really high priority for this so people don't continue to, to deteriorate. Um, and the only appropriated funding in the legislation that was being promoted um, appropriations that actually had a dollar amount associated with it were for long COVID registries and um, research on healthcare delivery and other types of deliverables that would give, be given to um, you know, medical professionals, things about long COVID. But right now we don't have treatments. So you know, spending another $10 million a year, which um, long COVID organizations could use to develop and maintain registries, that's not what we need. Um, and likewise with healthcare delivery, delivering treatments that we don't have doesn't make sense at this stage in the pandemic. So, so you know, those are some of the reasons. The, the demand is way too low to meet what, what we need, um, the amount in the legislation, and the focus. Um, so I believe that if we devote money to those things and we don't address the 11 demands and we don't have a sufficient budget, we're basically wasting um, money and we are also allowing Congress to check a box and say, we dealt with long COVID. Look, we, you know, we gave them $1 billion um, and not then address the very serious things that we need to address. Um, another thing for us is, is forward transmission. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not addressed in any of this. And you can't deal with long COVID without dealing with forward transmission. Yeah. So <laughs> then mm -hmm. getting back to your question, um, it was, again, L um, LCAP fights back and then long COVID AIDS. And we did want to convey that long COVID is creating AIDS-like conditions in people, which was not reflected in, in the hearing. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, explaining explaining that. I think I think that, that sometimes when people see actions like this and the phrases that are used, you know, it, it, it's like, I imagine it's difficult. I'm just sorry, this is just an aside. If you're an activist, you're trying to like get a message across you're doing it very publicly. You probably have what thirty seconds before security drags you away, <laughs> or less. I don't even know. And you're trying to like say something really direct and important, um, and making sure that that is communicated in a way that is comprehensive or, or um, you know, that can be comprehended by people. And and so I think yeah, having it explained a bit more comprehensively is like really really helpful. And so thank you for saying that, Josh. I think that really really helps. Um, Josh, what else do you think would be good to to bring up? in this? Well, I think it's, it's important to qualify, um, you know, what Linda said and what Stephanie did specifically with the moonshot kills, um, you know, rally cry that was released into that room. Uh, I think, you know, they talked about the 1 billion and why that's not enough. And then they talked about, um, the 28 billion, the, the ask from LCAP. 
And I, what's kind of missing there is that you know the one billion was more or less a number pulled out of pulled out of thin air here uh, by folks who did not qualify that request with an economist to see if it would actually meet the needs of long COVID research or meet the needs of long COVID social support, so support or meet the needs of what's you know coming down the pipe here for the costs uh, of long COVID on children. And, you know, I think saying moonshot kills is, is really like pointing to that. The fact that if you're going to underfund this by a tune of $270 billion over the next 10 years, you will absolutely be creating deaths for people because you have not provided the kind of investment needed to push for the antivirals that were also in the in what they they shouted out in that room. Um, so th- that's what really is important because the twenty eight billion that LCAP is pushing in these demands was a number that was provided by one of the renowned health economists in the country, and that is uh, David Cutler at Harvard. And even though LCAP did the work to get this number from Cutler um, through myself and my affiliation with Public Herald and questions that I sent to Cutler uh, as a journalist through Public Herald. Uh, Once that came out, researchers and activists that had their identity tied to this moonshot campaign refused to budge, Mm. refused to change their number to, to match it to this one so that we can push as one voice um, with a qualified economist for the kind of funding that we need to get us closer to combination antivirals and actually save lives. So I think that's part of the, the thing for me as far as the activism goes that really stands out here is that, you know, we're in a weird situation where in the past when, when I'm in a room like that and I see a group of people in the same shirt, um, they're usually people who were bought by the oil and gas company to shoot down, you know, some kind of climate initiative or some kind of local initiative to keep the environment clean. And in this case, I've got a group of people wearing the same shirt under moonshot that are attempting to shoot down what looks to me like the one of the most serious and strong and significant uh, long COVID grassroots movements in the United States being represented by two brave, courageous women that went on historical record and risked themselves, you know, risked their careers, risked who they are, and risked their health to make sure that these things were real. I was very, very surprised that I was not getting in the image a picture of uh, those with long COVID, you know, more or less clapping and celebrating the fact that this direct action had been performed. And it's just shocking to me that some of these strange dynamics um, that split activism in the climate movement are also here in the long COVID movement. And those dynamics are kind of tied to like, do we want to push for legislation that's going to kill us with climate, you know, that's going to kill the fucking earth. 
Or do we want to push for legislation that can save the earth? And I feel like it's in, this, it's in the same kind of category here with long COVID. It's like, do you want to push for legislation that's going to save people? Or do you want to push for legislation that will kill, you know, 13 million people, but maybe we'll get 10 million out of it? And that goes back to, uh, you know, Linda's point about what happened to her and her family. Like, we don't want that to happen to anybody that we're, we're waiting that long, right? You know, um, HIV AIDS movement with ACT UP, you know, they, they had to wait close to a decade before they got the results that they needed. And we're, we're four years in. You know, we're four years in and we have a chance to to do this in a way that can get done faster for this, for the people who are sick, for the people who are dying right now with long COVID. And if we have the opportunity to do that, then we need to stand up um, and make that happen. And that's why LCAP helped to make sure that this could be organized and help to finance it and help to, you know, uh, find a path that, that, that this could happen in that room so that at the end of the day, the Senate and everyone wasn't getting this kind of status quo situation. And the status quo has left us with absolutely nothing over the last four years. Absolutely nothing. $1.15 billion already spent in the NIH, and we've got nothing for it. We got no, we've got no antivirals. We've got a group of diseases that are attempting to... Uh, essentially steal the money that long COVID has to support research into long COVID by conflating long COVID to other diseases like MECFS. There's a whole list of comments made at that hearing about long COVID and MECFS as if these two are sort of identical diseases, right? And they can be studied together. Meanwhile, I've spoken to the top researchers in the country and they've said explicitly that these are biologically different diseases in terms of the pathway and what's happened and that they are not equal and they will require their own unique study and their, their own unique type of research in order to get answers. And the one thing that's majorly different between the two is we know what the target is with long COVID. We know SARS-CoV-2 is what is considered to be driving the mechanism of this disease and they do not know what the target is for ME. So, it's important that if we have this really valuable place to start, which is SARS-CoV-2, to keep that attention on long COVID and stop this grift that's happening to this disease, um, which unfortunately, you know, has made its way into every piece of legislation that was provided to that Senate Health Committee today, because uh, essentially, ME organizations worked for the last three years to help draft this legislation, and it, in, it includes allocating funding to what they call infection-associated chronic conditions now, uh, and that means splitting up the $1 billion, not to specifically long COVID, right, because that's what we're asking for here, targeted focus to long COVID, but separating it into what could be 50 or more diseases, so now you're talking about $1 billion for 50 or more diseases as far as research goes, according to the plans that they have. So we're HIV AIDS, you know, they, they tried to kind of do this sort of shit with them and they shut it down through their activism. And I feel like these folks who've wanted to have that voice and speak out, that Patrick, they've been attacked for trying to say these things. 
They've been ostracized. They're coming to us saying, thank you for giving us a chance to, mm. to show our power and show our strength because I've been beaten up by these people and these, these ME groups for the last four fucking years. Mm-hmm. And they're, all, they're, they're like huge accounts on social media doing this to people, going into their DMs and, and uh, attacking women for supporting action that's long COVID specific. And, you know, attempting to paint them as anti-inclusivity for fighting for their disease. Could you imagine going to an HIV AIDS activist and, and, and yelling at them because they're fighting for research specific to HIV AIDS? That's the kind of crap that's happening right now to these activists out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, even Linda has fell victim to this. We've talked about this. Uh, one of the activists who was there uh, was attacked earlier in this year. For, you know, taking these positions by somebody who runs an ME organization. Mm -hmm. And they attempted to create a propaganda campaign against Linda to try and shut down their activism and shut down their voice. Uh, And these things have been completely removed from the room. And we need to get them. We need to make sure these senators understand that the organizations that they allowed to be brought on to that panel of speakers today because that a lot of these people are working with those organizations, they do not represent the long COVID community in the vast majority when it comes to the demands that LCAP has sent to these legislators. And to date, these demands are the largest action for long COVID in the United States. It has the largest amount of consensus from the American community in terms of what we want and what we want to see moving forward. And that has freaked out a lot of these people that are part of the status quo, and they're out there. Fi- they're out there fighting right now, trying to shut down, <laughs> shut down the amazing work these two women just did. You know, trying to like minimize what they've done and and keep and get the focus off of it. So I just my heart goes out to um, both Linda and Stephanie for for what they did, and I am extremely appreciative. To, to see us finally going in a direction where, you know, we, we, we can potentially get closer to the combination type of antivirals that are literally going to save children's lives because we are focused on long COVID and we do not have this conflationary narrative controlling the long COVID space. Thank you for that, Josh. Uh, yeah. And I think that to kind of suss out some of those um, details, you know, certainly we've done some interviews over the last several months that are forthcoming that will, I think, get into some of these subjects a little more in depth. Um, but yeah, I just want to ask, you know, the both of you, um, Linda and Stephanie, if, if, you know, what do you foresee comes next as far as direct action or just other forms of activism on your part, as well as on LCAP's part? And what would you ask, you know, like people listening to this right now who are either suffering from long COVID, know people who uh, have long COVID, who care about this subject, in this issue as, as they should. Um, what do you think comes next? Um, I think we need to focus as a community on um, Long COVID Awareness Day, which is coming up in March, March 15th. Um, and I'm hoping that we can really rally for that and make a big appearance and um, shake people up in a big way. So um, and what was the last part of your question? Um, I'm sorry. I guess I was, I was kind of, yeah, so there's the, the activism and then 
you know, for people that are listening to this and that maybe do have long COVID, not sure exactly what to do with the situation they're in or those who like, I mean, I think everyone pretty much knows someone who has long COVID or if they have had COVID or not, you know, it's like they know people who are suffering on some level. In fact, I had a friend admit to me recently, he's like, I think I've had long COVID for about the two and a half years since their infection in 2020, you know, telling me, because I shared an article about how physical exertion from like working out was is like impossible is like really difficult or impossible for people many people who have long covid and um he told me that i was like oh yes of course like you know like all these little pieces kind of came together for me i was like of course that's that's it makes sense um so anyway my, my point was just like you know anyone listening right now and understands this uh for what it is you know what what steps can we all take right now to to get on board with this and to uh, not only just educate ourselves, but also to engage in some kind of direct action, especially at this stage of the pandemic? I don't know. I think we need to just keep trying to make our voices heard, however we can do that. I mean, some people who have this disease are literally bedridden and they're not able to go out and do actions or be in specific places where they can um, be seen. Um, So... I think it's just like important to do what you can with where you are. And I think it's just important to remember that um, you're definitely not alone fighting this and we're going to do everything we can to continue furthering it and putting it out and making it be heard. So, And I just want to say to both of you, seeing you do that direct action was, when I talk about that sigh of relief, many people were talking about just the words of the people speaking at this committee, but... Um, my sigh of relief was seeing that like there was something kind of that kind of broke through with the both of you doing what you did because there's a narrative that's been actively constructed around long COVID. Um, and there's aspects of that that are deeply problematic and the both of you kind of broke through some of that, I think, or at least anyone who's curious at least will kind of maybe think about that. You know, why, why did two people who are, experiencing long COVID do this, you know, what's going on here. So, um, anyway, I just, I, I really just want to thank you both. And if you had any final words, Josh, or, or either of you, um, yeah, please. Yeah. I would just like to add to, uh, what Stephanie said about what you can do and certainly people can join, um, the planning, um, for the long COVID awareness day, um, LCDC, um, is a website on, on that. That's an, a group that's putting together, um, events for that day. Um, and for people who are um, not able to go in person, um, it's going to try to be very different from this hearing where it would actually be accessible to people who cannot come in person. We're trying to set up remote um, you know, um, access possibilities and people can help in the planning or they could all, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into these things behind the scenes. So just because somebody can't actually be there in person doesn't mean they can't contribute so and and then of course the other thing I would suggest anyone to do is to join LCAP because we have a lot of other you know activities planned. And then for me, a big hope I have for the next year is for LCAP to actually get a seat at the table, so we can be um, helping craft legislation and um, influence the direction of um, you know the government response to long COVID, rather than having to crash a Senate hearing and protest. Right. Josh, do you have anything to say? I, I, I agree with everything that was just added there. And I would just add that, uh, you know, if, if folks can find a way to volunteer with LCAP, uh, that would be a really effective way 
to move things forward. Uh, we need as many bodies as possible to help get this work done. Uh, and if you have the financial means to donate, to make sure you see more direct actions like this, then please support us. Uh, we are planning for more direct actions soon. Um, so any financial support now will be going to that. And you can find us at longcovidactionproject.com. Uh, you can contact us through the email there or through Twitter. Most of us organize on Twitter. So Twitter DM is one of the best ways to, to get in touch. Uh, and that's through long COVID AP is the handle that we use there. And, you know, I think it's just, again, important to remember that, you know, we possibly could be fighting for not just ourselves, but really kind of the setting the standard for those who are coming after us. And for the children who, who can't speak, you know, they can't be here to do this. Like, why is America losing the battle right now as far as antivirals go to places like China? They got five repurposed antiviral drugs in China right now for dealing with COVID-19 and many of them associated with HIV AIDS mm. type drugs. Why are we falling behind on creating those types of solutions in this country? And I think, again, it comes back to this attempt to take COVID out of the discussion, take SARS-CoV-2 out of the discussion and place them into categories of, of a bundle of diseases so we don't have to refer to long COVID specifically. So we don't have to refer to the crisis of that and the SARS-CoV-2 specifically. So it's the framing of this that's really important. And you need to think about that when you're speaking about this disease and and talking about it in general to, to remember to elevate the importance of that name and the, the importance of that focus while you're in the discussion so that you do not have a situation where you're seeing stories about how, oh, we're going to find less long COVID in, in this. And we've got long COVID and long flu out there, like as if long flu is anything close to what long COVID is. And that kind of you know, dis stealing of somebody's disease identity is absolutely terrible. If you hear people talk like that, just, yeah. just stop them. Like you don't do that to people's disease names that are right. killing them. Um, so I think like, you know, it's, it's just really important to uh, be mindful of those things mm -hmm. as we move forward uh, and to try and be, to try and be involved because as Linda said, uh, this is a, a disease that affects everybody. And the data right now is shocking. You know, when you're seeing a four year timeline of long COVID and the CDC reports, there's over 4,600 deaths associated with that. That means that we're neck and neck with the amount of deaths that happen in the United States on a four year timeline mm. with HIV AIDS mm. at the beginning. Mm. That's a, horrible kind of parallel for for us to be in with this disease because then we don't know then are we actually getting to that point where the seven and ten year timeline means we're done because that means we need antivirals right now we need combination antivirals right now and every child and everybody else out there needs them as well um so the i think it's it's the urgency you know this has to be at the top of the table this is a national crisis uh, we, we need a national emergency established. So push for that, push for the urgency and make this as real as possible in your life so that others aren't going to fall victim. Other people that you love don't fall victim to this.
Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash last born in the wilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, You will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page that'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.